I want to invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We are going to uh, start what now is, I think, a two-part series, uh, Emmanuel, God with us, which we'll be doing tonight and next Sunday evening. And then the following Sunday, we have our Christmas program, sort of the potluck of Christmas programs, our family Christmas card here on the 17th that I'm looking forward to. Uh, but Matthew chapter 1, and we're uh, calling the series Emmanuel, God with us. And here in this passage, we see that the angel uh, comes and he speaks to Joseph. And let's look here, starting at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just, or that is a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, that is public shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here he uh, quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that even in these few moments that you would do a work in our hearts, a deep work in our hearts. Lord, there's so many other things that we could be doing in this moment, but we've set aside this time to come and to meet with you. And we know, Lord, that you're here to meet with us. Lord, let us not just be going through the motions this evening, but let us hear your word and let it bear good fruit in our lives. Let it not go in one ear and out the other, but let it take deep root in our hearts. Lord, your word is powerful. You even said, uh, Jesus, that the words you speak, they are spirit and they are life. And so, Lord, we know that as we open your word that there is life here. There is eternal life. God, we pray that we would encounter that, that we would encounter you tonight. Lord, that our, our thoughts towards you would grow, that our affections towards you would deepen, that our understanding of you would expand. Lord, that our love for you would grow more and more as we know you more and more through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many different ways that we can think about the birth of Christ. It's like a, a beautiful diamond, a beautiful gem, an emerald. You, you look at it, you hold it up, and under a certain light, it shines forth one glory. You turn it a little bit, and it sparkles forth a, another glory. It, it captivates the, 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 the eye just like a diamond would. And so the birth of Christ captivates our, our thoughts, our, our imaginations. And so there's many different ways to approach this idea of God with us, of, of Christ being born. And one of the ways that we typically think of the birth of Christ is 
we think of God doing something new. God's doing something new. It's the beginning of the New Testament, right here at the beginning of this section of our Bible called the New Testament. And we think of the new things that Christ established, establishing the new covenant, which has better promises and a better priesthood and a better sacrifice and and everything's better under the new covenant. And this is true. Christ did bring something new and something better. But as you shift the, the diamond a little bit, another thing that you see is that Christ's birth is, is not always, another way to look at it is not that God is doing something new, but that he is finishing something that he's been working on for a long time. It's the completion of something. It's him finishing something very old. And in fact, God had been writing a story of redemption for 4,000 years. 4,000 years he had been working on this story and, and Christ and his birth and his life, it really is the climax of that story, yet it's opening up a new chapter to a new story of, of the new covenant. And, and so since Adam fell into sin and God called Abraham and we look at the exodus through Moses and the kingdom under David and, and Solomon and the prophets spoke, speaking to God's people and them going into exile in Babylon and God bringing them back and, and the temple being rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah. God's writing a story. And the birth of Christ is that culmination. It's that crescendo. It's, it's the weaving together of all of those threads, of all of those themes that, that finally uh, meet their intersection, all of those storylines in Christ. And so Matthew, he begins his gospel with this genealogy. And though it is the word of God and the inspired word of God, I'm going to spare reading it to you tonight. But it shows how God throughout history has been weaving together this story of redemption. And when you look at it this way, that Christ is the culmination, something he had been working on for a long time, it shows us that God is working a plan a plan that had, he had in his mind, the Bible says, before the ages began. Before God even created the world, he already had in mind this plan to redeem a people for himself through the work of his son, Jesus. And so as you trace this plan of redemption from Adam to Christ, as Matthew does here at the beginning of his gospel, one thing becomes incredibly clear and quite striking, and that is how involved God was in all of these different stories. As you look through the pages of the Old Testament, which is, you know, two-thirds to three-fourths of our Bible, God is intimately involved in all of the details of these stories, even into the most smallest of details, details that we would consider to be insignificant, details we would 
considered to be small. What we see is from page to page, God's hand, his sovereign hand of providence is there on every single page. Not just in the good moments, not just in the moments where they're celebrating, but even in the moments where they're mourning, even in moments of of lament. You know, there's a whole book of the Old Testament called Lamentations, a book of laments. Guess what? God is in that as well. And so God's silent hand of providence in every detail overseeing all of his plan of redemption that culminates with this idea, God, with us. Christ is the full manifestation of God with us, God in the flesh. But let me be very clear. God was also with them in the Old Testament. Yes, Christ is the fullest manifestation, God in the flesh, God with us, but God has always been with his people. God was always with his people. And so tonight I want to look at God with us in the small things of life, in the details of life, God with us. Well, I just want to do a a, a brief survey, if you will, of of some of the, the, the big stories, the familiar stories of the Old Testament. And let us just look and remind ourselves at how intimately involved God was in all of these details. So let's start with Abraham tonight. Abraham, a man who grows up as a pagan, grows up in Babel, Babylon, the, this, this area of the Ur of Chaldees. He's He's the son of an idol worshiper. But God calls him at the age of 75 and makes a promise to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and that through him and his offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. What an incredible promise. Of course, we know the problem. He has no children. And there comes a certain point at a threshold which it seems as though having children will be unlikely. And I'm not going to say what that threshold is, but I will just say that Abraham and Sarah had passed that threshold. Abraham, 75. Sarah, 65. How wild that would be to know somebody in that age demographic that was with child. But yet, here is Abraham and Sarah, and they've never had a child. They couldn't conceive. We don't know how long they had been married, but let's just assume they got married somewhere in their 20s. They're they're pursuing, they're they're going up on their 50-year wedding anniversary before they ever have a child. Now, the Bible tells us and is very clear that it is God who opens the womb and it is God who closes the womb. That God is sovereign over that. And so God is in this story. God is there with Abraham and Sarah. And he is with them when they cannot conceive. And Abraham, we know, he steps out in faith. He believes the promise of God. He he, he, he steps out. He follows God into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to give him and to his descendants. And for 25 years, 
he holds on to that promise. Now, 25 years is a long time. How many of you haven't even clicked over that, um, that number yet? You, right? That's your whole life. We prayed for the young people tonight. That was all the people under 25 years, you know. For 25 years, that's a long time. God had made him a promise, and he was holding on to that promise. But year after year after year after year after year after year after year, there's still no fulfillment of that promise. But guess what? God was with him. God was with him. Though he had not fulfilled his promise, he was there with him in the unfulfilled promise. As Abraham held on in faith and his wife had other ideas for him, you know, have a baby with another woman, bad idea, men, bad idea. Should not have listened to his wife. Should have said, we're holding on to the promises of God. Instead, he, you know, sort of did like too many guys would do. Oh, okay, I mean, I'll do what you tell me. Yeah, I'll, okay, whatever, Sarah. You know, started, you, we're still, we are still in the throes of the mistake that Abraham made with, Sarah, with Hagar. The conflict in Israel is, is a continuation of the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. But nevertheless, God was with them in that. God was with them in that. And then here, Abraham, when he's 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 years old. She didn't get pregnant at 65. She got pregnant at 89. 89. My goodness. Can you imagine ladies carrying a baby at 89? Goodness gracious. I mean, I, I watched in awe and wonder as Heather, you know, made our babies in her without even trying. I mean, it's, it's amazing the, the, the life-giving role of a mother and I watched, I watched in awe and just, this is, this is incredible. But I can't imagine an 89-year-old body going through that transformation. That's just, it boggles the mind. I don't know why I got off on that. But anyway, God was with them even in that. God was with Sarah the whole way. And she gives birth at the age of 90, 90 to Isaac, the son of promise. And God was with them when they couldn't conceive, and God was with them when they did conceive. God was with Abraham on the mountain when he told him to offer up his son, Isaac. God was with him his whole life. And then Isaac now is the one who carries the family on this family that God had promised to bless the world through. And Isaac needs a wife, and so Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And you, you look at this story, and at any point in the story, it, it could just go one way or the, or the other. But God leads Abraham's servant, Eliezer, 
to the right family, to the right house, to find the right wife, to find Rebecca for Isaac. And he, he finds her from the right family, from the right clan, and God sovereignly leads his servant, Abraham's servant, to find the right wife for Isaac. And I think if I could just speak to all the single people here tonight, you might be here in, in your singleness and think, where in the world am I ever going to find a wife? Where am I going to find a, a husband? You got to trust God. You just simply have to trust God. God. God will bring you the right person at the right time. He will do that for you. If you try to force it, if you try to manufacture it, if you try to do it in your own way, in your own strength, you end up like Abraham and Hagar. You end up with an Ishmael situation. But if you trust God... And listen, he only, he only has to bring you one person. That's the beautiful thing. You only need one. It's just one. Can you believe? Some, sometimes people think, where am I going to find a wife? I got to go find, search out this huge pool of people and, you know, cast my line somehow out into the middle of them. And from that, I'll reel in the right one. Listen, that's not, that's not God's way. God's way is to trust in him and he'll bring you the right. You only need one. Can you trust God for one? Yes, I think you can. And in, can you trust him to bring him to you, him or her to you at the right time? Isaac was nearly 40 when he got married. Some of you say, I can't wait that long. Well, God knows. God knows. And he'll bring you the right person at the right time. Listen, it's, it's, it's better to be single than to be married to the wrong person. It's much better, trust me. It's much better to be single than to force something outside of the will of God. So, Isaac, he waits for his wife and he finds, uh, the, the servant goes and, and finds the right wife. God leads providentially the servant to the right woman, Rebecca. And then guess what? She can't have babies. She's now barren. Her womb is closed. And, and so now, well, God, is this the right one? You promised that through our family, the nations of the world would be blessed. Why is it that we are struggling so much in this family to conceive children when we're supposed to be the family that is the one that's going to be the blessing to the nations? And God was teaching these patriarchs, these men and women of God, he was teaching them that they had to live by faith. That they had to live by faith, that they couldn't trust in the arm of the flesh to accomplish his sovereign will and plan. So God providentially, uh, after they seek the Lord for a baby, he blesses Rebecca with twins, two nations, Esau and Isaac and Jacob, Esau and Jacob in the womb. We know the story that God promised to, to bless Jacob, but that Isaac loved Esau more because he was a better cook. Uh, and so he, he loved his 
older son better because he was an outdoorsman, he was rugged, he was a hunter, he was one of these man's men. He was so hairy, he was hairier than a sheep apparently. Uh, just this, you know, testosterone-laden specimen. And Jacob wasn't like that. He would go get waxed or I don't know, he was all smooth everywhere and he hung out in the tent with his mom, you know. He was into like hanging up drapes and decorating and throw pillows was kind of his situation. And so Jacob was his mom's son and, and Esau was his dad's son. But God had made a promise to Rebekah that Jacob was the one who was the son of the promise. And so when Isaac's about to die, we know the story that he sends Esau to go and fetch, to go hunt some, some food and to prepare it the way that he liked it and, and bring it home. We'll share in this meal and then I'll, I'll put my hands upon you and bless you. And then Rebecca comes up with this plan of, well, no, Jacob is the one who's supposed to be blessed. And so here you do this and you do this and you do this. And I mean, you just think about how many different times this whole situation could have fallen apart. What if Jacob hadn't listened to his mother? What if Esau had returned 15 minutes earlier? 15 minutes and the whole thing would have fallen apart. But we see what is the point in all this? is that God is in all of it. God's sovereign hand of providence is guiding the whole story to the conclusion, to the place that ultimately leads to Christ. What do we see happen with Jacob? Well, he has to run away, flee from his brother Esau after he stole his blessing by dressing up in his clothes and doing the, the whole charade that he did. And then Jacob ends up having a very crazy situation where he falls in love with Rachel. He works for her hand in marriage for seven years. Man, and it says it went by like a day. It, 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 he loved her so much that those seven years working for her was so, it went by so quickly, it says. But then... Jacob's father-in-law, man, he was a he was a he was a piece of work. This this was a this was a golly, I don't care. I don't you might have had a bad father-in-law, but you didn't have a father-in-law like Laban. This guy was bad news. So on their wedding night, as as Jacob is about to take his beloved Rachel into the wedding chamber. Somehow Laban pulls a switcheroo and sends his cross-eyed daughter Leah to bed with Jacob. And Jacob was apparently so happy celebrating, you know, he, he, didn't, he couldn't tell the difference until he wakes up the next morning and he rolls over to kiss Rachel, who's beautiful, and he rolls over and he sees Leah kind of cross-eyed looking at him all crazy, and he, what is this? What have you done to me? And we know the whole story, how it unravels. It, it gets crazier and crazier after that. 
to, to where finally he gives Rachel to him and then Leah starts popping out babies and Rachel again can't have children. And so the wife he loves can't have a baby and every time he looks at Leah, she's just popping out kids. And so Rachel then says, hey, why don't you take my, my handmaiden and have babies with her? And okay, I'll do that. And then Leah's like, oh no, she's catching up on the score. Here, take my handmaiden. And now Jacob has two wives and two baby mamas and they're all fighting over position of, of, of who's loved the most and, and whose children will, will be the ones that get the inheritance. And Jacob ends up with 12 sons and a daughter. And it's just utter chaos. All of the competition, all of the fighting between the families. I mean, I've got four children and I'm, I'm so blessed to have the four children that I have. And I have one wife and I'm so blessed with the one wife that I have. And things are even complicated in our family with one wife and four children, and oftentimes sibling rivalry and competition. I can't imagine having four different tents, and whose tent am I in tonight, and whose kid are you again, and just the chaos. But guess what? God was with them. God was with them in all of the chaos. He was accomplishing his plan and purpose. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Though, it, though none of us would say that this is how we ought to plan our families. It's a plan of disaster. But God was in the midst of it. The Puritans had a, a statement that they loved to say and that is so true especially as you look at human history and, and God's story of redemption, and that is that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And from Abraham to Christ, he draws this straight line of redemption. And every single stick he picked up to draw that straight line was as crooked as could be. But God was the ultimate author of this story. We know that the story of these 12 sons that finally Rachel is able to conceive and the first son that she has ends up being the 11th son of Isaac, of Israel, of Jacob. And they name him Joseph. And so because uh, Jacob has been waiting for a son from Rachel for so long, now he's in his older age and he has this son named Joseph, he really begins to treat him like a grandson. He begins to just shower him with all kinds of love and affection and no discipline and, and kind of letting him get away with murder and gives him this beautiful robe, this coat of many colors, this very ornate garment. It, it would be thinking of, think of it like a very nice tuxedo. And so he gives it to Joseph as a gift and Joseph wears that tuxedo everywhere. 
And think about how much that would get on your nerves as one of the older brothers to see your little brother that doesn't have to work, that just kind of does whatever he wants, that he gets all the reward, he gets all the blessing because he's from the, the woman that our father loves. Our father didn't love these other women. He only fathered us by them, but he's bestowing all this love and affection on Joseph. Man, think about the family dynamics there. And so Joseph's brothers begin to hate him. God ends up giving Joseph these dreams, and Joseph rolls up to breakfast in the morning wearing his tuxedo, coat of many colors, and starts telling his brothers, you're going to bow down to me one day. God gave me a dream. You're all going to bow down to me. Man, as, an, as, a, as the firstborn son, which I am, I can just think of how that would chafe me to hear <laughs> that kind of talk out of one of my little brothers. Uh, I'm going to bow down to you. Yeah, right. Let's settle this right now on the basketball court. Let's see who's going to bow down to who. It, it just, it was so toxic, as we would say today. And so his, his brothers decide, we're going we're gonna to kill this kid. We're going to kill him. That's what we're going to do. And so what's incredible is the dreams that God gives to Joseph about his brothers bowing down to him end up becoming the mechanism by which those dreams are fulfilled. Because if Joseph had never dreamt those dreams, he would have never, never ticked off his brothers so much that his brothers wanted to kill him. But it's because his brothers wanted to kill him that they're planning to kill him. They've thrown him into to a pit to kill their brother because if they can kill the dreamer, then the dream won't be accomplished. And then they see some traveling merchants off in the distance. And it's just like every single place in the story is God's hand of providence just moving and working. Well, what if there had been no traveling merchants to come by in that moment? You know what the mind-bending thing is? You know who those merchants were? They were Ishmaelites. The, the merchants that they sold Joseph to were the son of Abraham and Hagar's descendants. It's the Ishmaelites that come by as merchants and they say, why don't we just sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him? Let's make a few bucks off of this situation. It's incredible how God just weaves the whole story together. And so at the last moment, they decide to sell him into slavery, not realizing that their actions were the very means by which these dreams that God had given would be fulfilled. They were the ones accomplishing the dream. They were the ones who were being led by God's sovereign hand. They were trying to stop the dream, but they were the ones who were setting it in motion to be fulfilled because God is the one who is writing this story because God is with us. So they sell him into slavery and Joseph, the teenage slave, 
is approached and seduced by the, this powerful woman, Potiphar's wife. And, and somehow, Joseph turns her down. It's just mind-boggling to think of somebody in that situation it would have been totally acceptable for him to give in to her uh, advances. Nevertheless, he refused. Then he's falsely accused. And, and in that moment, Potiphar, his owner, had every right to have him killed. He was a slave who had supposedly accosted his wife. But instead of having him killed, he has him thrown into prison. It's in the prison that he meets the Pharaoh's butler. The Pharaoh then has a dream and the butler remembers, oh, there's this dreamer interpreter and it's just God writing this story. And the whole point that I'm trying to make in drawing all of this out for you is that God was there in all of it. God was there in all of it. God was there in the pit with Joseph God was there when he was falsely accused. God was there when he was in prison. God was there when he was elevated to the second in command of Egypt. And Joseph ends up saving the lives of millions of people, including his own family, the family that God was working through to redeem humanity. Through all of the actions of his brothers, those dreams ended up being fulfilled and they come and they bow down before Joseph, not even realizing it's him. And the story just goes on and on and on. You can look at Moses. Moses, the illegal baby that was born illegally. They smuggled him until he got so big that they couldn't have him anymore in their house. And so they put him in a basket in the river just to say, God, we're putting him in your hands. We can't keep him. If we keep him, he'll be killed. What can we do? God, we'll just put him in your hands and, and you do with him as you see fit. And then here goes the little basket. And where does it go? To the Pharaoh's sister who doesn't herself have a baby. Pharaoh, the one who had said that you can't have these illegal Hebrew kids. She adopts Moses, the illegal Hebrew kid, as her own and raises her in Pharaoh's house. Because she wasn't a mother herself, she needs a nurse for her baby, so she sends for a nurse. And who is it that comes? But Moses' own mother. What an incredible story. These aren't just coincidences. These aren't just happenstance. This is God's providential hand in all of it. Moses one day exiled because he took matters into his own hands, tried to deliver his own people through his own strength. So he's exiled into the desert for 40 years. And one day he comes across a bush that's on fire. And so he goes to check out this fiery bush, this burning bush, and the bush talks to him. And instead of like running away in terror, Moses stands there and talks back and has a conversation with God through the burning bush. And God tells him, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And God uses this Hebrew slave to defeat the Egyptian Pharaoh. You can go on and on. We could look at David and his life. 
You mean to tell me that David was such a good shot with that slingshot that he could knock that giant down? Give me a break. Man, the Lord guided that rock that day. It was the Lord that accomplished that victory. But then you look at David's greatest failure, his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murderous affair. But then it's through his second son that he has with Bathsheba. The first son we know passes away. But the second son was named Solomon. And it's Solomon who becomes the next king of Israel. It's Solomon through whom Christ comes. God even redeeming that horrible situation. You can even look at Christ's birth, the place of his birth, the time of his birth, the parents he was born to, God's protection over him, even as King Herod tries to kill him. Redemption beginning in such a small way. So many different points along the story. If somebody would have just gone left instead of right, the whole thing would have have fallen apart. But God sovereignly with them in all of it. And I wonder, were they aware that God was with them? Were they aware of his presence guiding them? Were they aware of his sovereign providence leading them day by day? Or were they just living life? Well, as you read the text, especially as we talked about in Genesis It seems more often than not that they are oblivious to the fact that God is with them. It seems that they are not really aware that God is the one guiding their story. Every once in a while, they become aware of God's presence and they are in awe. We see an example of this when Jacob has the dream of, of, of the ladder that goes up to heaven And he sees the angels coming down and going up. And when he wakes up, he says this. Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. That most of the time they were just going through their life, living out their life through the ordinary events of it. God's sovereign and silent hand of providence guiding it to its ultimate conclusion to bring forth the Messiah, to bring forth Jesus. We see Joseph at the end of his life has this great revelation when his brothers come to him and Joseph says, you meant it for evil. What you meant to do to me, my brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yes, you were doing these things against, against me, but there was another hand, a sovereign hand, that was leading and guiding every step of the way. And what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. In the big things, in the small things, God was with them. His silent hand protecting them, providing for them, leading them, and guiding them. And then this is just a small survey. We could go on and on and on and on. In every story of the Bible, we see the same thing, God's sovereign hand leading and guiding. 
And though the, the canon of Scripture is closed, though we're not adding to books of the Bible today, God's story of redemption is still being written. God's story of redemption is still being written today. And God is likewise just as involved in the small things of your life. The, the, the details that we might think are small and insignificant, God is involved in them. God's sovereign hand of providence, protecting, providing, leading, and guiding us. The question for us is the question I asked about them. Were they aware or were they just living out life? You know, I believe that God wants us to be aware of this fact that he is with us. I think that's very obvious in the fact that that is one of the names that he has called himself by, Emmanuel, God with us. So in Christ, we have this revelation that God is with us. Maybe they didn't have that revelation there in the Old Testament stories. But what's our excuse? We know who Christ is. We know that he's Emmanuel, God with us. We know that he's never promised to leave us or forsake us. We know that he has promised to be with us even to the end of the age, always. So we have no excuse for being oblivious, for being unaware of God's presence with us day by day, moment by moment. In the ordinary, boring, seemingly insignificant stuff of life, God is in that too. You know, sometimes we go through things in life and we wonder, does God see this? Is God aware of this? Is God too busy paying attention to all the big people, quote unquote? To, to all the, the people with big names and all the, the big events on the world stages? Is God so preoccupied with, with Israel and Gaza and Ukraine and Russia that he's forgotten about me in San Antonio, Texas? No. God sees. God is with us in all of the small things. God sees everything and God is leading and guiding and he is sovereign over all things. Sovereign over all things. We need to cultivate that awareness of his providential hand in our lives. We, we, need to, we need to think, okay, Lord, you're with me today. Help me to, to live in light of your presence today. Another thing that we ought to focus on, just cultivate in our mind, is that we are too often impressed with big things. With big things. Well, tell me about this and these numbers and how big that was. And, but that's not how God thinks. That's not the way God thinks. Everything big God has ever done has started small. Everything big God has ever done has started small. Every revival he's ever sparked started with one person. With one person. God never does something big without first starting small. And so we, we need, need to not be so impressed with the big things, but we need to be faithful in the things that God has given us. 
Faithful in the small things. And those are the parables that Jesus taught. We need to be faithful in the, the small things. Those who are faithful over little will be given much, Jesus says. But we tend to think, I'll be faithful in the big things. You know, I won't commit adultery. I won't kill anybody. Well, praise God. And then think, I'll just neglect all the small things. But Jesus tells us, that the, 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 the Bible tells us that it's the small foxes that spoil the vine. It's, it's the little things that go unchecked that end up bringing corruption and rot. While we're so busy paying attention to the little things, we're neglecting the small things. But the, the small things matter to God. And in fact, it's how we handle the small things, the little things, the insignificant things, the things that nobody else sees but only God sees. It's how we handle those things that show our character. It shows our character. And if we cannot be faithful in the little, God will not entrust us with any more. Why would he? He would be foolish to entrust those who cannot handle the small things with big things. You know, children in our culture are often looked down upon. They're often in our culture overlooked, often neglected. And that, that's, that's a, a, a product of our, well, we focus on big things, you know, important things, the important people and kids. They're just kind of a nuisance. They're kind of a problem. They're just kind of there and they're noisy and they're loud and they need diaper changes and blah, blah, blah. And can't we just get some people to take care of the kids? That's kind of how our culture thinks sometimes. But what do we see Jesus do? Jesus says, bring the children to me. Let the, let the little children come to me. And he takes them up in his arms. The disciples trying to say, no, no, Jesus is too busy to, to deal with nursery ministry. Jesus rebukes them and he says, to such belong the kingdom of God. He takes the children up in his arms and he blesses them. What we consider to be small and insignificant, God often considers to be big and important. The truth is that everything to God is small. Nothing is big to God. To God, everything's small. We're the ones that categorize things. Well, this is a big thing. This is a small thing. But if you're God, everything is small. Well, what is big to God? Well, nothing. He's, he's bigger than big. I mean, he's eternal. He's, he, he's God. <laughs> so what's big to God? Nothing's big to God. So that means the, the things that we think are small, they're just as big to God as the big things. It's us that, that has this scale of, of small to big. So it's no wonder that God would take so much care in the things that we consider to be small. Because to God, they're all, it's all flat to God. Zechariah the prophet says it's foolish to despise the day of small beginnings. God's plan of redemption began with an old barren couple. If you were going to start a plan of redemption to save the world, you would not start with a barren couple in their 70s. That's not where you would start. But that's how God works. He chooses the most unlikely, 
broken, messed up people to accomplish his purpose. And thank God he does. Otherwise, there'd be no place for us. And through them, he brings salvation to the whole world. And he's involved in all the smallest of details. So let's take care of the small things. Let's be faithful in all things, knowing that this is the way of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is built not by one huge thing to one huge thing, but God's kingdom is built one life at a time. One small area of our lives that we devote to him, his kingdom grows and grows and grows. God is with us in all of our lives. He's involved in every detail. He's involved on the days that we celebrate. He's involved on the days that we weep. He is with us in all of it. I want to close by looking at 1 Corinthians 13. In this life, we will undoubtedly go through times of confusion, like Abraham waiting 25 years. What are we to do in times like that? Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, he says, Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Listen, all of us in our life and in our journey, we only see the smallest sliver. God sees the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He, he sees every moment of everyone's life and he is weaving together his plan of redemption from eternity past to eternity future. And all we see is what our two little eyes can see. But God through our lives is weaving a story of redemption. Paul talks about it here. We know in part. We see through a mirror dimly. But there's coming a day when Christ returns, when we will not know in part, but he says we will know fully. We will see face to face. In that moment when we see Jesus face to face, we are going to see how all of the threads have woven together the most beautiful tapestry of redemption. Even the hardest parts, even the, the heartache, even the, the broken places, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How is he going to do it? I don't know. That's why we have faith and that's why we have hope in this life. The greatest of these is love. Because there's coming a day where we won't need faith and we won't need hope anymore. 
When Christ returns and we see him face to face and we see how he wove it together, we're just going to stand back and go, wow. How did you wrap all of those loose ends up? How did you do that? We will see it. We will see that picture so clearly on that day, but this day we don't see it. On these days, we see a mirror dimly. On these days, it really takes faith and it really does take hope. But on that day, we won't need faith and we won't need hope anymore, but we will still have love, the greatest of these. And so we see through a mirror dimly. We see just our, 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 our little sliver, our, our little piece of our life And so in these moments, we hold on to the promises of God. You are with us. Even in the hard times, even in the dark times, even when I don't feel you, even when I don't uh, sense your presence, your word says that you are with me, God. And so I choose to trust in your word. We see through a mirror dimly. But there is coming a day where every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you show us that you are always with us. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. Lord, there are days that we go through in this life that we're not aware of your presence. There are days that we go through where we feel like you are far from us. Lord, help us on those days to remember your word. Help us not to be people led by our feelings, but to be people of faith. The just shall live by faith. Lord, I thank you that you entered into history as Jesus. You came as that babe in the manger And Lord, you came and we celebrate that birth. We celebrate your birthday. But Lord, you came for that last day. That's why you came. You came to die for our sins. Lord, no one could have predicted that you would redeem the world through the greatest sin that's ever been committed. No no one could have predicted that that you would bring resurrection out of that dark tomb. But Lord, that's exactly what you did. And so Lord, we see how you even weave in and you enter in to our broken story. And through our, that brokenness, you bring your resurrection power and your life. So help us on the days that we don't see, the days we don't understand. Help us, Lord, to be aware of your presence, that you are with us always, and that you work things together. You're weaving them all together for our good.